Nothing brings people together quite like loss. It's something that we all will go through because it is simply part of life. Experiencing loss brings us to our most vulnerable places and causes us to reflect on our lives. But hey, that's exactly what we do on this show. So today we're asking the question, the big chill, what's it about? I'm your host, Ricardo Blade Diaz. And I'm Seth Crow. And this is the What's It About Film Podcast, the show where two aspiring creatives aim to glean the meaning of it all through the media we consume, holding a mirror up to ourselves, and seeing how it reflects in our own lives. Seth, how are you doing today? I'm a little sleepy, you know. A little sleepy, yeah. Well, tell I'm, people why you're sleepy. Uh, well, my sister's here. They're, uh, her and her husband are going to house sit for us while we go to Mexico next week. Um, but they have a child, a babe, my baby niece, Eliza. And uh, they had to go get their teeth cleaned this morning, so I got up way earlier than I normally do and watched the baby. And the baby was supposed to sleep. The baby did not sleep. So I was supposed to just, like, go in there and take a nap next to the baby while the baby was asleep. But that's not how it works. So did the baby know it was supposed to be asleep? Did the baby know? Did you tell the baby? We told the baby. They put the baby to sleep. It was asleep for like 15 minutes and then and then it was not asleep. I think the baby just simply didn't know it was supposed to be asleep. It's simple as that. You just have to be like, baby, <laughs> you're supposed to be asleep right now. And the baby's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. My mistake. Well, <laughs> I figured out through trial and error that the baby just wanted to be sitting up with its feet being rubbed. So... I, I sat there for like an hour holding the baby up, rubbing its feet. And then my hair would like fall down like this. And then mm-hmm. she would grab my hair. And that's what that that's what kept her entertained. So as soon as I laid her down, no bueno, no bueno. <laughs> Wanted to sit up. But yeah, that was my morning. So I'm a little groggy. It's so funny. <laughs> You're doing uncle, <laughs> uncle time. Monkey Seth. <laughs> dance, monkey, dance. <laughs> Rub well, my feet. My sister's been calling uh, me Unky, Unky Seth, so Sarah's changed it to Monkey Seth. Uh, it, might, it might stick. Who knows? Monkey Who knows? Seth. That's so cute. That's cute. But also, it, if it's not your normal thing... It, it can be exhausting. Babies are emotionally exhausting. Yeah, yeah. I it's physically exhausting, I mean, but yeah. I know you're a champ. I know that's like what you're used to. Literally being around Eliza for like 20 minutes makes me want to take a nap. Just like <laughs> presence makes me sleepy. I don't know why. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm immune to to the baby exhaustion game. <laughs> yeah, I'm just I'm just. I, uh, it's it like there's like an aura around me. And it's like baby exhaustion. You're fine. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like straight up like like it puts me to sleep. There's like something about being around her that makes me just super calm and want to pass out. Well, you know, we talked about how you're a super empathetic person. I mean, you kind of feed off of people's energies a lot. And so like babies are hyper emotional, obviously. Yeah. And so like. Yeah. You're like experiencing that with the baby, and so like you don't have the same amount of emotional capacity no. that babies do. So no. it's exhausting for sure. Emotionally, I, being I, around yeah. children is exhausting. I was saying to Sarah yesterday, I was like, I think you would have to be a baby's parent. Like I just could, I, like in order to be able to handle it all the time. It's just like 
it's yeah it's a too it's intense it's intense oh, yeah. it's tough i mean it's difficult and that's one of the reasons why like parenting like those first couple of years of their life those early childhood development stages are both really important but also extremely exhausting for sure yeah it's a lot going on there so yeah I they're all asleep me. now they're all asleep now they're all over there passed out good so we could do a <sighs> show without no baby can... interrupting us <laughs> so uh... seth you, you chose 1983's the big chill you kind of gave us a little bit of insight into why you chose the big chill but please can you elaborate for us today yeah um so you had you had chosen Greece uh, for your mom, mm-hmm. um, and I mentioned to my mom that we did Greece, and she actually really, really liked listening to that podcast. So I figured, and and she like right after that uh, mentioned, she's like, "You should do the Big Chill. You should do the Big Chill." And so I was like, "Well, why not? Let's do it." And so this is my mom pick. Um, it, it's one of their favorite, my parents' favorite movies, and no joke. Uh, I had no idea how influ- influential this movie was on me already, but without even seeing it. So like this movie affected my parents so much that there's so many things in it that were in my life that I didn't know, like I didn't know came from this, this movie. So it's like, Ooh, it, it was, I cannot wait to hear that. It was trippy to watch it and to be like, whoa, this is where my parents got that, you know, like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. So, so interesting. So yeah. So interesting. Okay. So, and you had ne- so you said you had never seen it before this, but, but it, no, I never seen in it. In a way no. you have. That's so interesting. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I had also, I had also never seen this movie before. Um, I'd heard of it. I'd heard of it but I'd never actually watched it. So this was also my very first experience with it. Um, and so I think our, well, if I'm going to be 100% honest, I think it's, it's, I think it's very pleasant and enjoyable. Like it's really a cute, enjoyable watch, even though it's like two hours long. It's like, it's, yeah. it's nice to watch and it's funny. And it's entertaining. It's, it is heartfelt. But like, I think ultimately I came away with like being like, I don't know how much I like resonated with a lot of that. You know what I mean? Like, like I think other movies have, have explored similar themes in ways that got to me more, you know? Yeah. Um, so like, so I, I liked it. It's enjoyable, but I don't think it was like my like all time favorite exploration of these ideas. If that makes yeah. sense. It was fun. Yeah. It was fine. I I was surprised though. I mean, we'll get into this later. I was very surprised it got like Oscar nominations and stuff like that. Because I was like, this felt like a play. Honestly, it felt very theatrical. Uh, I, that's what I'm. I, I was like actually wondering, uh, looking forward to your your uh, uh, what's it uh, what yeah, it was it or whatever be. because yeah, how it came to be because I was wondering if it was a play before if mm-hmm. it was this. Uh, because it does feel like a play. It does. Yeah. And and I mean, we're both uh, theater guys. We both come from the theater. So like, it's not that this necessarily is a problem, but what that does in film sometimes, it just causes, you know, it these kind of slice of life type movies, I think are hit or miss for me as far as like how much I really, really love them. Because sometimes at the end of a movie, you come away and you're like, I don't like, 
I don't know if I like really like this really went anywhere kind of thing. Yeah. It definitely sliced the life. Um, I will say I, I think this may be the best acted film we've done. Oh, it's really, uh, really good. It's really, really the, good. The, act, the acting in this film is incredibly good. Like the ensemble work, I guess, like just the way that they deal with each other and the way that there's subtle reactions and like there's just so much subtext into in, in, in all of it. Oh yeah, I I would say I would say I wouldn't know if I'd say it's the best acting because we've seen some amazing performances from the movies that we've that we've watched on the show. I mean, you know, several yeah. Oscar nominated performances. Um, I would, I would say, say the best say, ensemble, like yes, the by far the best ensemble, but also I would say the most probably some of the most natural acting, like where it's just, you yeah. don't, it's like so natural, like the you you believe that these are just people, you believe that they're they're old yeah. friends, like it was so natural and so subtle, it wasn't flashy, and that's like I I mentioned this a little bit later, but it wasn't flashy, especially for like the early eighties, things not being flashy was yeah surprising and throughout the 80s um so yeah let's roll let's roll right into uh how this film came to be so we can uh, illuminate some of the things that are going on that me and you both are picking up on in this film before we get into our full discussion of do uh, it of what it's about so this film is directed by lawrence kasdan uh lawrence kasdan who also directed films like Body Heat, Silverado, The Accidental Tourist, I Love You to Death, Grand Canyon, Wyatt Earp, French Kiss, Mumford, Dreamcatcher, Darling Companion, and Last Week at Ed's, his 2019 short. Of those films, he has four Oscar nominations. This one was also written by Kasdan and co-written by Barbara Benedict. Uh, Kasdan also wrote things such as, and this is a crazy list here, Kasdan also wrote Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Continental Divide, Star Wars Return of the Jedi, The Bodyguard, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and Solo, A Star Wars Story, along with many of the films that he had directed as well. Um, wow. Then, that's, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. He's a big deal in Hollywood for sure in their, in their early uh, 70s and the 80s. Huge. Um, and uh, Barbara Benedict also wrote Immediate Family, Men Don't Leave, which is a uh, – um, the director of Risky Business also directed that. She wrote that film. She also wrote Sabrina. Um, so a little bit less of a, a catalog there. But they wrote this film together. Um, and this is the whole story, the big picture of how The Big Chill came to be. After seeing the 1980 film Return of the Secaucus Seven, a story about a group of seven former college friends who get together for a reunion weekend away, Writers Lawrence Kasdan and Barbara Benedict were inspired. Feeling connected to this film, Kasdan and Benedict wrote their own screenplay that explored a similar setup through the semi-autobiographical lens of their own experiences attending college in the 60s and coming into adulthood in the 70s. This would eventually become The Big Chill. Benedict and Kasdan were developing the script while Kasdan was directing his feature film directorial debut, Body Heat, which also stars William Hurt. But pretty soon... This script started making its rounds around Hollywood. Kazan first pitched it to The Lad Company, a young production company who had produced Kazan's film Body Heat, but would later go on to produce things like Blade Runner, The Right Stuff, Police Academy, and Braveheart, among many others. However, the company would pass on this project. 
Then after reading the script and loving it, producer Richard Fishoff would bring it to Paramount, who would also pass. Then Fishoff brought the script to producer Marsha Nassatir, who just co-founded Carson Productions with the famed talk show host Johnny Carson. Fishoff eventually convinced Nassatir to finance the film as the studio's first feature film. With the film finance, production began and the big with the film finance, production began on the big chill in 1982. Kazan assembled an amazingly talented cast, which included Glenn Close, Kevin Kline, Jeff Goldblum, William Hurt, Tom Berenger, Joe Beth Williams, and Mary Kay Place. But he also knew the film's success entirely hinged on their chemistry. So he shipped them all out to Atlanta for three and a half weeks of rehearsals and cast bonding before the film began at the end of the year. The Big Chill hit theaters in September of 1983 to critical and financial success. The film has grossed over $56 million worldwide on just an $8 million budget, while also receiving three Oscar nominations, including Best Original Screenplay, Best Picture, and Best Supporting Actress for Glenn Close. However, none of which would they would go on to win. The Big Chill isn't one of the flashiest movies of the 80s and is often forgotten by mainstream film fans. On the off chance, though, it is stumbled across. It continues to amuse and touch those who rediscover it. That, along with the film's banging soundtrack, makes The Big Chill pretty cool in my yeah. book. And that's that the soundtrack, story of The Big Chill. That soundtrack is like, it's like if you had like a, I, I don't know, it's just like all the movie songs. It's like all the movie songs. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. They, gosh, they must have spent so much, and I don't know how much I don't know how much music rights were back in that day. But like, damn, like that sound—that's the yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy of the '80s. Like For Guardians sure. of the Galaxy had all those awesome like '60s and '70s songs, and this one also has all those great '60s and '70s songs. Yeah, damn. Uh, uh, so that the music is actually probably what was seeped into me by my mm -hmm. parents. So like in the very first scene where the dad's playing with the baby, you know, mm -hmm. and he's singing, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. That dad, was my childhood. Dad. My dad would sing that song to me uh, constantly. Like it was like our song that we sang. So oh, wow. I think, I think there's like some sort of like, parallel there with my dad and this character. Um, I think my dad really identifies with his character. Uh, he's the Harold character? Yeah, he's always been a runner. You know, uh, yeah, he's, I think he like, uh, maybe, may or may not want to have been like this guy, you know, but I can definitely see my dad's dad like similarities between the two. So, interesting. And then the other the other song that was like recurring through my uh, through my childhood was you can't always get what you want. Mm -hmm. And it's like that song's in this movie, too. And and so, like, yeah, my parents definitely took things from this movie with, with their child rearing for me. So That's so interesting. That's funny. I mean, these are, I mean, it's great music. It's classic music. I mean, yeah. my dad's big into that era of music too. I, mean, I don't know if he knows the big chill, but like that's, it's just amazing music, you know, heard it through a grapevine and nothing like the real thing. You know, it's just, it's, yeah. it's a pretty amazing soundtrack. Um, 
Um, so, yeah. so where are we at? Where are we at with this thing? So we can we can talk about what is it? What is what's the yeah. plot of this Let's one? Do but like, that. What do you think about Glenn Close getting the best supporting actress nomination? I don't know. I don't honestly, know either. She's like she's like my least favorite thing in the whole movie. Uh, honestly, it's <laughs> well, like well, she's like the sad one, right? She is. She's the one uh, that's showing her grief more outwardly yeah. than anybody else. Yeah, and not only that, like the end, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we're going to get into, is really yeah. weird to me. I I don't find it justifiable. Really, I can't Some like I've, I've thought about it. I mean, Love. it's it is you know I guess I mean it just doesn't. Maybe because these people were raised in the '60s and it was free love, and then it's like, so it's like that stuck with them, even like even to now. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. Like it just studying out your husband just doesn't seem like <laughs> like like it would go well, and like it doesn't seem justifiable. It just doesn't seem to me like because I cheated on you, I'm going to let you make a baby with our friend. Like, it just doesn't seem. I don't know if that's where it came from. We'll get into it. But yeah, 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 it's very strange. Uh, I was just looking up uh, the other films that that won that year or that the uh, the big show was up against that year. And um it's just interesting year for movies. Um, so like things like Tender Mercies, The Right Stuff, The Dresser, The Big Chill, and then Terms of Endearment all came out uh, that year. Um, and Terms of Endearment just kind of swept almost all of these genres. And almost anything it was nominated in, it, it won. Uh, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Su- Supporting Actor, like best supporting actress um it's insane yeah. uh, best best uh, adapted screenplay it won everything swept huh. the year politics baby politics um but yeah what what an interesting little year i don't know man like i said i i don't know how i feel about this movie because like i i liked it and it was enjoyable but like i don't know how much i loved it you know what i mean there's a lot yes. of complex things going on in here. Though. I, I didn't love it per se, but I I liked it, and I I understand why my parents like it so much. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean it came out in the early the early eighties, so like probably one of the first films, not one of the first films, but a film very unique at that time. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, let's talk about what is this film? What is the plot of this film? And you're gonna score me. <laughs> So yeah. let's see if I can nail it this time. Hoping to get above a above a above a seven today. Want to get an eight or better? <clears throat> After the unexpected death of their college buddy, seven friends and the deceased young girlfriend gather for a weekend of grief, reminiscing, and celebration. I I give it a seven. Damn. Yeah. How could I, I have improved on that? Uh, I think you could have said something along the lines about the 
the revelations about the relation, like something about the relationships unfolding at the house, like something about their growth mm. over the weekend, you know, like something that yeah. is indicative of, of the plot, uh, mm. the stakes of the plot. I gave the setup, to, but not the, but not yeah, the, yeah. the follow through. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll take the seven. Yeah. He's my average in yeah. the sevens. So, I was, you know, I'll take it. He's my average just above seven. You know, I got to keep, you know, I got to keep you honest. I gotta hey, it's seven honest. out of ten. It's not bad. That's pretty no, bad. It's great. It's great. I'll take it. All right, Seth. So this is your film. You picked this movie. Uh, so it's your turn to ask the question. All right. Ricardo Blade Diaz. The Big Chill. What's it about? What's it about? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stuff. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie. There's, it's an ensemble cast. There are a lot of characters. And each character is kind of going through their own struggles. Um, and yeah. so in that, there's a lot of different themes that get explored. <clears throat> and so, but the thing that, that really stands out to me the most, and I think is the core theme of this film, is this idea of... You, you never really quite end up where you think you're going to as as a youth. Um, when you're a kid or even when you're a young adult, you, you have a vision of your life, what you're going to do, what you're going to accomplish, where you're going to be in 10 years. Um, and it's never that. It's never that. Rarely do people end up exactly where they think they're going to. Yeah. And – Sometimes I don't think this is always the case. Some because sometimes I think people wind up in a place that's different than they expected, and it's better than they expected, or it's or they're surprised that they that they're surprised that this place that they didn't even think they would end up it feels right for them. But for a lot of people, and I think for for a majority of people, honestly, you end up in a place that you feel dissatisfied with. You didn't accomplish what you had wanted. You didn't, you don't have the, your wife and kids yet. You don't have the career you wanted. You don't have the success that you thought you'd have at that point in your life. Um, and particularly loss causes you to reflect on where you are in your life because it reminds you of your own mortality. And so mm -hmm. this film is, is that it's, a friend of theirs takes his own life uh, prematurely. They all believe that he had never reached his full potential as he was this scientific physics genius who refused to live that life, refused to live up to that expectation of being a science prodigy. Yeah. And so this, this man dies, takes his own life before pe anybody thinks he had accomplished and everything that he could have, which causes his seven friends to consider where they are in their lives and how are they living their best life? Are they doing what they can to be happy? And the lost, in, the lost warmth of their youth. Um, and so that's where it hit me the most. And it's something that as someone as that's pursuing acting, um, it's something you constantly think about about 
I'm 30 years old and I'm, I'm nowhere near close to being successful, you know? And, and, you know, I thought when I was younger, I thought I'd totally have a family by my, by the time I turned 30, nowhere yeah. near that. And so do I look at that negatively or do I look at that? It just says what it is. It changes from day to day, you know? Um, sometimes I'm, it's, it's fine, you know, it's cause I'm pursuing something that I really want. And I, I do appreciate where I'm at in my life and my accomplishments that I've had, but sometimes, yeah, it's like, could I have done better? Yeah. Um, what about you, Seth? Where, where do you feel with this film? I, I think what you're saying is there, but I don't think it's what the core of the film is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you, that is, that is definitely like part of it. But I think what's interesting here and like, this is where, where I've, you know, I think for me, this movie is about how you cope. Mm. It's about how you deal with, with, it's, it's not so much about your life, not being what, what, you thought it was going to be like, that's a part of it, but it's how you deal with the dissatisfaction of living and how you deal with the essentially the existential fear of death. Um, and like, especially in like, especially a funeral of somebody that you didn't think was going to die. You know, I think in your thirties, like death, death hits you for the first time, like really hits you. Um, because it's like, oh, like, like somebody dies young, it's tragic, whatever. But somebody dies in their 30s, it's kind of tragic. But it's like, well, they were an adult. They didn't, like, die young, like, super young. They didn't die, like, at 17. Mm-hmm. Like, and it's kind of like, oh, man, like, I, it could have been me. You know, like, it could, it could have easily have been me. And so I think that all these all these characters in this movie are dealing with death for the first time, like in relation to their own mortality, which which you said. But I, I think I think it's like how you how are all these people coping? Mm-hmm. Each character is coping with with their lives in different ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's I think that's interesting. Because how do you go about your life knowing you're going to die, Mm. you know? And the good um, place does such a good exploration of that idea of like talking to Michael, uh, uh, Ted Danson's character, who's a a demon who, uh, you know, doesn't know death. Mortality is in, you know, is eternal. And at one point where, she, uh, uh, Kristen, uh, Bell's character is explaining what like mortality is and how it feels to know that you're going to die. It's like, yeah, you're kind of, uh, knowing that you're going to die eventually one day kind of makes you sad a little bit all the time. It's, it's an existential dread that you kind of always is ever present and creeps its way in every so often. And it's just something you kind of have to live with. And, and particularly for me for this film, if I could just elaborate a little bit, particularly this film for me is about how loss causes you to reflect on your own life. And like you said, some people can be 
happy where they are. Some people can be dissatisfied where they are. Some people have different ways of managing that realization. And you're right. This and so I think our our two themes together kind of really get out what this film is exploring is a death causes you to reflect on your own life. And then what do you do about it from there? And how and how have you dealt with it to that point? So like for a lot of them, they aren't necessarily dealing with it the best ways before the death. Um, right. But they may not even be conscious of the fact that that's what they're doing. You know, that's the thing yeah. is, is I don't the think, death uh, causes Gold- them to realize. I don't like, I think Jeff Goldblum's character is the most immature in terms of his own mm-hmm. awareness of like how he's relating to people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he's the most removed. Um, whereas the, uh, you know, I'm bad with names. The guy that's the psychiatrist, the psychologist that's on drugs. Um, uh, that's Michael. Nick. Nick. No, Michael uh, is 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 Jeff Goldblum's character. Okay, Nick yeah, is yeah. William is William Hurt. Yeah. So Nick's character, I think, is the most aware of mm-hmm. his distractions. You know, even though he's the most distracted and by drugs or whatever, but he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's definitely like. On the verge well, you know, of offing itself, for sure. Well, you know, well, that's what, you know, because he, I think he's, I don't know if they talk about anybody else, but he was drafted into Vietnam or, or he went to yeah. Vietnam. I don't know if he was drafted, but he's, it sounds like he's the only one that did go to Vietnam. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he experienced a, an, uh, an injury that's caused him to be impotent. So yeah. like, like, yeah, like he, he's, he's experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of his own types of loss. And so he, you're right. He's on the verge and Chloe, uh, uh, the deceased's Alex is the, is yeah. the deceased friend. Alex's girlfriend says at one point that Nick reminds her a lot of Alex. And like, there's that realization of like, Oh, <laughs> am yeah. I that close to like just killing myself? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, that's to me, like, I, I actually really enjoy the themes in this movie because like, mm-hmm. um, I think this is like the human problem, right? Like this is like what we're all dealing with all the time. And this movie does a good job of like, it is slice of life, but like it captures the tone of that existential fear and of the existential like precipice, you know, mm-hmm. um, and how like we all don't, we really all don't really have any control, <laughs> you know? So it's like, it's like, how do you go about living your life? And, and it's like, I, I, so there really quick tangent on that. Like I heard a song this week. It's a really good song um, called someone else's cafe uh, by this band called Dawes. Uh, check it out. Uh, give it a listen. It's kind of a long song it's, and it's kind of jazzy, but uh, the lyrics are really good. And basically the, the theme of the song is um, we're all just, Everybody, doesn't matter who you are, you're just working for somebody. You're waiting tables for somebody at their cafe. And it's like, at the end of the song, it's like, so does anybody have a song 
they'd like to sing or a joke they'd like to tell to help pass the time on the like edge of our despair. So it's like, it's like the really like, it's just about enjoying each other's company. You know, it's like trying to just trying something, find community and try to find something that makes it better. Um, uh, yeah. So like it, it's, this movie really captures like, Oh, these are this, these, like, truthfully, these people want to be around each other all the time. Mm. And it's like really dumb that they aren't like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like, because this is where they're most happy is doing this, but they all have to like, go live their lives the way that they thought their lives were supposed to go, but they're all unhappy in their lives. So it's like, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, And there's a lot of, uh, like, I'll say this. There's a lot of, I'm not sure what the movie's maybe trying to say here, but there's a lot of sexual undertone in everything in this movie. Well, yeah. So like, so to to roll back in the film a little bit. So they are all college friends from, uh, from years ago. And they apparently they lived in a what was called a a co-op dorm in at yeah. the University of Michigan uh, for for at that time during that era a co-op a co-op uh, dorm was a co-ed dorm where the students were expected to kind of live almost as if they were like in a house together so like they like cooked together they cleaned like they basically ran their own household together yeah and so all eight of these guys these people lived in this co-op together and that's one of the reasons why like they're so close and like during like the cooking scenes like they're all take their different tasks and the way they yeah. de- they deviate uh they deviate up work is is because they've lived together for and know each other that well um one of the things i thought was really cool in researching this film uh, so they, like I said, they did the three and a half weeks of rehearsals where they all lived together uh, in Atlanta before shooting this film so they could build up those relationships. But one night, director Lawrence Kasdan said, I want you guys to cook a, cook dinner together in character and not break character for the entire cooking and meal and cleanup. Stay in character that whole time, and That's cool. so, and then he, and then he left. So it was like a five hour, improv improvised, in character marathon for these actors, where they were yeah. just literally cooked, ate, and cleaned up at a meal together, in character. And apparently it was exhausting, um, but they they all said, "Wow!" Like the different nuances and and specificity of character that came about after that was insane you know yeah um you can so, really see it too you can really mm-hmm. see it mm-hmm, absolutely and and like you said like the, in living together in college with with you know people who aren't your family uh there's yeah. going to be quite a few romantic entanglements especially because they were doing it in the 60s like the 60s you know yeah yeah <laughs> or, or even the, the 70s i mean in the free 70s. love free love movement Right. But I also think a major factor in that is like they didn't have cell phones. Like it's so it's so cool to watch this movie and be like, this is what people used to do. You know, like I know it sounds 
stupid, but like we used to sit around and talk and enjoy each other's company. You know what I mean? Instead of, mm. instead of just hanging out in the same room, watching a movie on our phones together, you know? Mm. And, uh, I think inherently, I, I think this, I think there is this sexuality amongst people in the same peer group, mm. like always, I don't think it goes away, you know, it's just, I think there's less time to, to experience that energy. Now mm. we can distract ourselves from it. So mm -hmm. like, it's kind of, it's kind of wild to like, look back and be like, man, like everything was so charged. <laughs> people, people wanted to fuck back then. Yeah. Cause there's nothing else to do, you know, like nothing else to do. I can't, I can't play tech Tetris on my phone. So I might as well bone somebody. Yeah. 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 Which like <laughs> is, is wild to think about now. Cause like it, I, I, you know, I haven't been single in a long time, but if I were like, I can't imagine how you pick up on things like, like it just doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like that anymore. You know, oh, like that dude. moment when Jeff, Jeff Goldblum leans in, like, like it, it's like everybody knows what he's wanting, you know, but it's like, so not asked for, you know? And so it's like, I don't know, like, it just seems like a, a, it's a time capsule of, of how people used to get together. You know, it's, mm -hmm. there's no and apps. It, it, no. And it, it's, it's complicated. So like we learn throughout the movie that Glenn Close's character, Sarah had had an affair with Alex, or at least had a relationship with Alex, uh, before marrying Harold. Um, and Harold knows about it, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, it's established that because that was a slight miss. Like Sarah yeah. and I were talking about this, and she was like, "He didn't know about it." I was like, "No, he knew about it." No, he knew about it. So yeah, yeah. She told him. Um, yeah. and so there was that complication. So there's it's Sarah, Sarah and Harold, and Sarah and Sarah and Alex, and then Meg's been with with Mike, but uh, but uh, Mike, Michael, but also it might want to be with Sam, but also you know it wants to talk to nick and so there's that and then karen is in love with sam but has her husband richard and it's it's just very complicated um yeah i mean i don't know if you i mean my my high school friend group or not my high school friend group my college friend group was definitely like this a little bit like definitely had some com complexities of uh, like everybody could hook up, you know, like it, it, it could definitely go down under the right circumstances with every single person in the, the, in high school. Thing. Yeah. Everybody, you know, small, small town people, everybody dates everybody. So like once one, a relationship breaks up, like people are hooking up, you know, intercrossing left and right all the time. College when I was a biochemistry major, no, there was not as much of oh, that, but I also went to, I was a, theater major so it's very oh, different I was, just, I was just gonna say i became a theater major my junior year and that was also like that like this yeah um, where like people were sleeping together all over the place yeah it was very messy um there's a lot of drama in that way um so yeah i, I totally get this i get like this like interlocking but also like 
again, this is ten years later, so or like more than ten years later. Do you think? Do you think we crave that? Like, so I I may have mentioned I got a new therapist on here recently, and uh, she does um, one of the types of therapy she does is equine therapy where she takes people to like hang out with horses. I was just gonna. Right? She's like does therapy for horses. Therapy with horses, not for Got horses. It. Okay. And uh, so we've talked a little about it, a bit about it in in our therapy sessions, and she's she relates humans to horses um, a lot because we're social animals, uh, essentially, but we're both predators and prey. Um, so, and and almost like towards each other, even, you know, and so it's like a, a unique relationship. Um, but it's interesting to think about people as herds, right? And it's like, really, you wish, like, think about this group of people. Like, they're essentially a herd of horses with one stud. Like, you know, like, uh, but they, they really would rather be together. Um, so I think, I think this is what, you know, we really actually crave as people is like these friend groups that we like are super close with. Mm-hmm. Um that that that's where we actually thrive and like in terms of happiness but i feel like we're we're isolated now like we we isolate ourselves and it's not this seems very organic but it's also a little like it could be culty you know it could get like uh it could get a little well there's a fine line between commune and cult right yeah like well like a lot of people would went, might push back on that, but like, what makes a cult a cult? It's it's really if there's a figurehead or if there's a collective well, leadership that is using their their community as a ways of personal gain, manipulating using as a ways of personal gain. Well, I mean, a commune, I think is is no one in particular trying to like get personal gains from anybody else necessarily. <laughs> Did you ever watch that documentary about the uh, the Bagwam or whatever in no. California? No. Basically, this cult that came into uh, California and it blew up, and it was like, but it was one guy. It was it was during this like free love movement, I think. But basically, like we're at the tail end of it. Like, spread to California. Came from India. And they were using like they had a whole complex and it was like definitely like a sex cult, but they were also being getting a whole lot of money from it. And like the, the main guy had like Rolls Royces that he had purchased, like definitely exploitation. But what's interesting is the one, the, the lady who was running it, his like main lady, like he was just the face. And then there was a woman who was just kind of like the, basically this lady, she was like the organizer of everything. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm just saying arguably, arguably, Harold's the like face of this cult. And then Sarah is essentially like organizing how it's going to like. Oh, that's a really good way to look at it. I well, so. I mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, it, that that's what's scary about 
like, so I, I, I am now working at a, a very, very socialistic, uh, restaurant. So like, and like one of the girls there, Dana, she's her like dream is to start a commune, you know, like she wants to start a commune. And I mean, like, there's something very appealing as I get older, like, and especially as like technology is like ruling our lives. Um, there's a part of me that would be really down to just like go somewhere, learn to farm and just live, you know? Um, and just with, with a group of people that I enjoy being around, you know, like, cause that's really all I want to do. All I want to do is just hang out with people I like and, and like chill by the fire and cook meat. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to do anything, honestly. Like I just want to be around people I enjoy. And, and I think that's what they're doing in this movie. But the, the danger is, is it starts getting like complicated if you start, if that's all you do, you know, like what, like, like, I don't, I, like I said, I cannot justify why Sarah chooses to stud out her husband. And can we get there? And is there a theme sure. glean to glean? Cause okay, so sure. If that feels cult, that's culty. That is culty. That is definitely. Well, here's the thing. Okay, we can talk about it. So, for people again who have not watched the movie, or or I don't know why you're listening to this, but okay, here we go. If you haven't watched the movie in a while, you don't remember. Uh, Meg, uh, one of the the women in this friend group, uh, really wants to have a child, and she's been struggling to find a relationship in order for her to. To, have, to bear a child. And so she comes in, and I don't think she had this pre-planned um, when she got there. I think it kind of came about through the reflection of the death, but you never Maybe she had thought about it before. But anyway, she says to Sarah that she really, really wants to have a child. And so she's going to ask... Uh, she was going to ask Nick, but she learned that Nick is impotent, so he can't really perform. And then she says, I'm going to ask Sam. Well, her and Nick actually have like real history and relationship. Right. Well, and her and so do her and Michael. And, yeah. you know, so and like I said, it's all complicated. But anyway, so she, Nick can't because he's impotent. So she goes to Sam and Sam said no. Um, and so Meg is kind of in this place of like, I don't I, – I really want to have a baby. I love these, these men in my life. These are the most important men that I've ever met in my entire life. Like I love these guys platonically, you know, some of them in the past romantically, but right now platonically, right? At least that's the impression that we get. And so she's like, I would have a child with with really any of these guys, honestly, Um, just because I love them and I trust them. So, but eventually she moves through the group. She, she, again, Sam, Nick can't, Sam says no. Michael offers, but she, she turns him down, which strangely enough. So the only one left is Harold and Harold's with Sarah. <laughs> you know, they're married. They have two kids. Yeah. They have at least two kids. Um, yeah. So um, Harold's not an option. And, and Meg says as much. She's like – and because she's talking to Sarah. She's saying, oh, like Nick can't. I'm going to ask Sam. But if Sam says no, like Michael, I don't really know. And, she, and Sarah's like, well, what about Harold? And And – 
Meg says, well, I love Harold. I would love, you know, I would love for Harold to do it, but like, but he's, you know, he's taken, you know? Yeah. And so Sarah, I don't know what it is, but like Sarah throughout the story is like looking at Meg and like seeing how much he wants to have a kid and how much he's struggling. And she, at the end of the film, she sees the way that Meg like talks to her kids as like Aunt Meg, basically, um, how maternal she is. And so she makes the decision to ask Harold to do this thing for Meg. Mm, right? Ask is a strong word. <laughs> I think she asks because he doesn't owe her anything. Well, especially, especially uh, if, if you believe, especially if you believe that that uh, Sarah cheated on Harold with Alex. Like, if you believe that's true. Like they like that Harold and Sarah that, that's were together. True. That's true. Um, that's pretty un. un I don't think that could. That's so then, at so all. then Harold, Harold doesn't owe Sarah anything in that way. I just think when you say ask, it, it, the way that scene goes down is they're in the like pantry or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's like they're kissing, and then. She's like, you always, uh, he says, or she says, I don't know, like, I would do anything for you. You know, I would do anything for you. He says, she's like, yeah. And then she's like, okay, well, you'll do anything for me. This is what I want you to do. You're reading this in such a strange, different way than I am am reading this situation. Like it didn't, like that sounds so seedy and manipulative. And I don't like, like she's testing his love and was like, how, why? Because he, after she cheated on him, she he stayed with her. Like the, he seems very committed. I, to her. It's a, I think it's a control thing, man. I think it's like I. That's not how I read this at all. I don't think this film is portraying it that way at all, bro. I. It's interesting that that's how you're reading it. It. I disagree. Okay. I mean, you can disagree, and I, I'm not saying it's not what you're saying too. But. There's definitely an element of her own psychosis and like how she's dealing with Alex's death and like it, it has to do with like her desire to be the bad girl. So like, it's like tapping into what she felt with Alex, I think by permitting this affair like really she's the one in control because she's allowing it to happen so it's like kind of bad it's kind of taboo you know but it's like she's basically making her it's like and what's harold gonna do like i actually have way less respect for harold after this like as a as as a character um because he seems like the strong guy who's got it all together and would do anything for his wife but it's like at what like there at what point like you need you need to have your own like moral ground i guess so Um, let me ask you this this is in the 80s the early 80s had this happened in contemporary times and meg came to sarah and harold and was like would you be a sperm donor would that be okay? I think that's totally different. Yeah, I do think that's totally. So it's different. the actual act of sex. Yeah, it's the 
there's there's no getting around the emotional vulnerability like if you if it's a sperm donation thing that's that's one thing but like to take her in the bedroom and and like have to make love essentially like because they do love each other mm-hmm. that's i mean it's it's a very very confusing it's 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 we it's weird it's in terms of like regular human relationships it's a definitely like a a sidestep well here's the thing that's that's why i think this movie is so interesting in that these aren't regular human relationships these are very hyper hyper specific and and complex relationships there is these aren't normal relationships these the the way these people interact with each other are not every day not normal in that way i think that it is an accurate representation of human relationships that are intimate like very close friends i think it's very accurate um now they are happen to be rich and they happen to have access to a casual drug, like to do drugs recreationally, uh, you know, and they definitely were raised in the, the hippie flower power movement. And you can see that by like the way they spend time together, mm-hmm. you know, like they're all kind of, they're okay with, they're not like, I, I thought the casual drug use in this movie was fascinating because it was so like, especially for the eighties, like early eighties, like so regular, it wasn't like, glamorized it was like it was like a real house party um Mm. which i think is interesting um but i i i get what you're saying that they are all it it is niche because they are all specific relationships but i do think it's reflective of like of any close friend group you know um they just happen to be rich and have drugs that they can do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just like, I, I, I don't even know if we're talking about anything right now. I just I'm trying well, to say like, <laughs> I, I think we're honestly, we're getting into a, a way that we, a specific nexus in the film. And it's at the end. This is like very, almost the very end of the film. So it's a very particular point where me and you, are just getting different feelings from something. And there's something behind that as to why yeah. you're feeling one way and why I feel another way about it. Um, and um, so you're thinking, you're thinking is, is that Sarah is just trying to do her friend a favor and she's literally throwing her a bone. Not necessarily. I think that. There's a moment in the film where where Sarah's talking to her kids and you can see that there's this in the midst of her depression. She, like you said, she's the one showing the most grief throughout. We see her crying in the shower. We see her turning in early, just being emotionally exhausted in comparison to everybody else. Um, there's a moment where she's talking to her kids where there is like a genuine love and joy that she feels – uh, and she sees it also with Harold when he talks to the kids. And then he's, she sees it when Meg talks to the kids. You know? Like they're amidst this grief and this pain. There's 
There's they, real love there. Right. Harold, Harold and Sarah have a thing that connects them and brings them that sad, that, that love and connection that they need to sustain them through their life. And Meg doesn't have it, you know? And, and a lot of this film, they talk about how much, a lot of them, how much they hate their lives and how much they, they are, how unhappy they are. Right. Like, and there's one point where like they're talking and, and Nick is like, sometimes it's about like, why not to kill yourself? You know? Yeah. Basically. And so like, there's a moment I think where it's like, wow, like some of us are so supremely unhappy that we would, because they've already lost one friend that way, and they had no idea that that he was in that position, place emotionally. Yeah. How how that easy mon- could it be for for anybody else to do the same? That monologue Nick gives on the couch is brutal. Mm-hmm. It's br- like every line that he says is just like so deeply. It hits you deep, like humanly deep. I guess. Yeah. And and I think so. Like this decision to to allow uh Harold and Meg to do this thing comes after that right this this idea of we all love each other so much and it would kill any one of us if any of us were to to this to happen again right like each time that this could happen would be worse and worse and like they talk about how they were the happiest when they were all together and that's never going to happen again right that like them being so together is never going to happen again. And so losing each one of them individually like like this would would be terrible. Right? I don't know. I just I I didn't read it as such a a a not nefarious necessarily, but like as such a manipulative controlling thing. Like it didn't like Sarah does have that that moment where she's talking, she's like about her relationship with Alex, how it made her feel like she wasn't just the good girl who did all the right things all the time, made her feel a little bit bad. And throughout the movie, we see her do like, like drugs and things like that. So she does like dive into being not, not good. Right. Yeah. But this is the end of the movie where, where especially this movie is portrayed as like, they're supposed to all grow. Right. They're supposed to come out of this having healed and be able to move forward better for her to make that decision in the manner in which that you're describing it would feel like a massive step back, a massive, I, massive uh, pitfall to me. I don't, so I don't, I, I don't think she's intentionally nefarious. I don't think she's like intentionally being manipulative, manipulative. I think she thinks she's doing something good. I think she is coming from your perspective, right? Like, I think that's her intention, but I don't think that's the psychology of what's going on. And it's – I mean, for all we know, we don't know why Alex killed himself, really. Mm-mm. We don't. But to think about it, okay? I think one of the reasons that Sarah's taking this so hard is because she blames herself for his murder – for his – not murder, but his, his suicide – because I mean, they're living in her house. They're in love with each other. You know, she sees, she sees, or uh, he, Alex sees Harold and Sarah's life, and like the kids and and everything they have, and he does not feel accomplished in any way. He actually just he's avoided his success, and 
he's in love. He's in, he's still, they're all still in love with each other and mm -hmm. they probably have a stronger chemical connection than Sarah and Harold, Alex mm -hmm. and Sarah. So, I mean, he's, he's literally put himself in their household and is constantly they don't live together to though. They live, it's, it's a separate house. Right, but so, they're like in each other's lives. They're totally yes, in each other's lives. Yes, they. They. And, I, Harold says as much. Yeah, and and I think like, and I think him getting with this dancer girl, right? Mm. Like, I think that he sees probably a relationship, and he's getting a relationship. He's getting uh, something that could lead but he's dissatisfied with it, you know? So like he probably offs himself because he would, he doesn't, he doesn't want to ruin Sarah's life and everything she's built, but he's miserable. So he kills himself. And so Sarah blames herself because she knows that the truth is, is that they should have been together. So I think what's happening is, is there's this like, lifting of societal norms that happens for her because she's like, well, I should like, I should have been, the truth is I should have been with Alex and Meg probably should be with Harold, but I don't want to give up what I have. The chemistry between Meg and Harold is very real. And you see that from the beginning, like when they're on the couch together, like, he, like she's rubbing his feet. And then she, there's like a line where She's like, um, he's like, oh, I always want to rip Sarah to shreds when she's wearing that robe, you know, like he's like turned on by her in the robe, you know, and I, I just think, I think that this choice for her to stud out Harold is her way of coping. It is a way of coping just like everybody else's. It's she does she doesn't know how to like justify her own life the way it is because it's not what she wants because she didn't really follow what she wanted she followed what what made sense you know and i think we do that i think everybody does that to a degree you know like and it's to you know maybe it's debatable that alex went the extreme the other way because he tried to pursue what he wanted, but ended up with nothing, you know, mm. and he didn't do anything. He made no choices that made sense. He just made choices that he wanted, which left him alone. And so I'm just saying, like, I think this is there's a lot going on with Sarah's psychology in this. And it's not I don't think it's sweet. I think it's a, it's a it's a it's a her desperate grabbing for something to make sense or some sort of justification. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, and that's kind of what, like, I, I have a lot of feelings about Harold in this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very interesting that you're like, you kind of go hard on Harold here in, in this. Yeah. Way. Because, because I don't think I don't, I don't agree with the choice to 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 go through with it you know like mm. 
I think he's just, I think Harold is driven by just mostly distraction. Like his whole life is like focusing on the job, focusing, like he's trying to uphold this image. Like he's like narcissistic almost like he's, he's very self-absorbed. And like mm-hmm. the fact that he's like, okay, I love this person, but I'm going to go have sex with somebody else and bear a child with her is like just feeding, I think further feeding into narcissism. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not, it's not about her. It's about him fathering a child. Like, Oh, I'm such a good guy. I'm such a good person. I'm the only person that can do this. She can go find somebody else, you know, like it's, I, I think it's really fucked up. I just, I do. I think it's really screwed up this whole, I, I have gotten to the place where I get why Sarah does it, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree with so the morality of it. So interesting. I mean, if we're going to look at a, if we're going to be cynical for a second, to be honest. Me? Cynical? Never. <laughs> <laughs> like, and this is honestly something that people say about everything that human beings do. Anytime we do something for somebody else, it's really in the service of our own our own ego, right? Our own. Yeah. It Like, you know, we talk about how one, something that I have a problem with is overcommitting myself to to jobs and things like that or like to work, to, to people – uh, I'll go in and work maybe more than I should. I'll, I'll take extra shifts. If, if someone asked me to take a shift, I'll take their shift almost all the time, right? I'll overwork myself and to my own detriment, right? And people will ask me, well, why do you do that? And a, a lot of my the answer is it's like, well, like because I feel bad if I don't, right? If I just say no just to say no because, you know, like maybe I need just a day to just not like not work, you know? Um, yeah. And, but I'm not really doing anything specific. There's no reason for me to say no. And I say no anyway. I feel like crap. And th- that's true. But the, the real answer is like as much as I like complain about it, like there's a bit of myself that like likes to be a martyr, you know, likes to be yeah. dependable, likes to – it makes me feel good to know that I'm the go-to guy. Yeah. Right? As – but then that's that's a lot of pressure too at the same time. So like I lament the pressure. I lament that I'm always the one that has to do everything. But at the same time, it's scratching my ego that I'm the guy, right? Yeah. And so like there is a, a, a weird psychopathy to that, right? Yeah. A psychology. And like is that a good – but is that a good thing or – like so yeah. Like you can look at almost any good decision that anybody makes and it's really to make yourself feel better. Like everything we do is a little bit selfish, like everything, like nothing is truly altruistic. Altruism is almost a, a, a fake premise at, at a certain point. Yeah. So like if um, you want to look at things like that, sure. Like I can see that. That's true. Like there is a – I'm being a good person by doing this for my friend who I love very much and that love is real. And so like it is – there is a sense of I'm such a good person. Same with Michael. Michael walking up to her and being like, I'll do it. That's the same thing. It's him – it's him. It's his ego of like, I'm such a good friend to you. I will do it. Yeah. You know? So I, I totally get that. And there's a lot of ego going on in this friend group. They all think very highly of themselves. Yeah. They all think they're very smart. They all think they're very, they're very, you know, they, they, they think they're pretty great. If well, that, if especially Harold, especially Harold. Like, Harold. He's yeah. the golden boy. He is yeah. the, he's the one that made all his friends money. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, He's committing white collar fr- crime yeah. in this movie. He, you yeah, know, he's he's, trade, he's t- selling trade secrets. 
Yes. I mean, like, like he's essentially, and like, I, I, I think that this, like what we're saying and what I'm saying about this is there's a duality to the situation, which there's a duality to, to human nature. Right. And we've talked about this before, but like, basically Harold has the police in his pocket. You know, he, he runs, he, he runs all of these, uh, shoe stores. And I don't know if you get how small business works in America, but it's pretty, they cut a lot of corners and like he's, I mean, and, and then the, the fact that he's doing these trade secrets, I mean, the guy's a mob boss in this, in this, like in his own way, like not, he's not actually, but he kind of is. And so it's like, but he thinks he's done it all right. He thinks that he is such a good person, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he's going to do his wife a favor and bed down her best friend, you know, and give her best friend a bit. It's just so like, like he should have turned this conversation has taken. He he should have been like, like, he should have been like, no, you know, like he should have been like, I love you. I don't want like, I don't want anyone else, but you like, like it would, uh, it's also selfish for the kid. It's selfish to the kid. Cause the kid's going to grow up without a dad, you know? Like, I don't know it. What I'm getting at here, the whole, what I'm saying is, is this duality is real. And I think this is why this, this movie affected my parents so much is like life gets complicated and the lines start getting really confusing and you get to this place where you might let stuff happen that you never thought you'd let happen. And Mm -hmm. because you are none of us know what we're doing. (laughs) And so like, and so it's like, yeah, maybe you can justify studying out your husband, you know, like maybe, maybe that is justifiable. You know, maybe you can justify moving in with your best friend's ex-girlfriend right after the death. Uh, like right after he dies. Oh yeah. There's so much complicated stuff going on here. Yeah. Yeah. And so So, I think, I think this movie's like life's complicated. And I think that's what this movie evokes is like that because we have to cope because we have to like figure out a way to survive this existential precipice of death, we end up compromising. We end up, we end up creating very complicated lives. You know, um, I want to ask you, what do you think the title means? Because they never say it in the in the movie. What do you think, think the title means? I think it's death. I mean, the big chill is the big death. Like it's it, the long the chill the long is sleep. The long sleep, yeah. The big chill is a nice way of putting death. Interesting. Uh, can I say what the uh, uh, screenwriter slash director says? Oh yeah, I'd love to hear. So basically, this is what this is what he says, and then I'll actually give a, a different a different definition that's like a, a more cosmic definition. The Lawrence Kasdan said that the Big Chill stands for the moment 
when you go from the warmth of your youth and adolescence, young adulthood, into the cooling effect that life has as you get older. So yeah. that that warmth and that lively energy, that fire that you have as a as a young adult, how it cools over time, and you and you lose that motivation, you lose that connection, that passion as things yeah. cool for you, right? And and like you were saying, the flower power movement, those people, I mean, that's where Kazan grew up from was the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, professional in the 80s. That cool, that cooling effect for that generation was really rough, you know, very yeah. peace and love and, and all that stuff. And then like the harsh realities of adulthood come in. Yeah. Time to go it, to work. And it the the complete isolating feeling that that gives time to go to work and drug drugs are bad and you shouldn't Mm -hmm. be having sex with everyone. Right. And, and and the excitement of, of living is, is, is kind of gone. And we see that with these characters for sure. Yeah. Um, I think Sam's, I think Sam is the most like honest. I think he's the most honest of all of them. mm -hmm. Uh, well, he's, he's, he's got like, this celebrity status, but he's very much like, it's not that great though, guys. Like, yeah, like he's constantly questioning it. Like, he's like, look, he's like, don't get me wrong. I like a lot about it, but he's like, but like, like it caused, it ruined my, my relationship with my wife and it's estranged me from my daughter. And no, it didn't. Hell. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Uh, that, Boredom. That, that's why he's the most honest. That's why he's the, why he's the most honest. Boredom. Because he's just like, no, like. I know, like I, I think Sam of all of them is the most advanced because he's like, I can't do this for you. Like mm. I'm bored and that's uh, like, and, and I know what this is and I don't think I, like I could do it for my ego. I could do it to make you happy, but mm. I don't want it because I know what it is. And like, that's advanced. Like that's mm. authentic, you know, is to be able to say no, because I'm a bad person. <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm bored with life and I don't want to like cause pain by including you in it. So mm-hmm. like, I have to live a certain way. And yet he sleeps with Karen. Oh, no, I mean, and then, and then she decides to go back to Richard. Ugh. But, but even the way that they deal with it is like, he was up front. You know, like he didn't lie. He no. didn't say he didn't like she, she, she doesn't know. She isn't, she bought the ticket and paid. She like got the ride, you know, like she knows what she's getting. Mm-hmm. And like, she even is like, you know, maybe you can give us a tour of the, me and Richard, a tour, Studios. you know? Yeah. And which is the least he could do. <laughs> But but it's the most he could do because that's what he said, you know. Mm. So I, 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 yeah, that that's to to really quickly touch on like what I was mentioning with my therapist and the equine therapy, and I use this word authenticity. Like horses, the reason uh, horses, another reason they're so like. Um, great to work with for people is they're not like dogs and cats as emotional support animals. This is what my therapist said. I'm not, I'm just 
saying what she told me. Um, but she said that dogs are codependent. Um, cats are independent and horses are authentic, but they still want to be around us. So what that means is horses are just in the moment behaving the way they behave. They're, they still want to be around us, but they're also afraid of us. Not like dogs who just like need us, you know? So it's like a, it's a working relationship essentially. And authenticity, the fact that they are what they are, regardless, I think is like what's cool about them. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's where human beings are different is like, we aren't authentic most of oh, the time. No. no, no, no. And I think, I think a, like a core part of being happy as a person is learning to find your own authenticity, like learning to be authentic and, um, and that's why these friend groups are so important is because those are the people you're authentic around, you know, mm. because then you go out in your life and you have these socializations and rules and corporate bullshit. And, you know, like this is the, who you're supposed to be, but really you just want to be with your friends because that's who you can be yourself around, you know? So, so I, I enjoy the authenticity displayed in this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like, as human beings, we're afraid of that. Mm. I yeah. mean, right? Like, yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> it's like, it's abnormal. It's, and here's it's, the thing: it's it's vulnerable. You know, yeah, when you're vulnerable. when you're authentic with people, it leaves you it leaves you vulnerable to a lot of things, to judgment, but also to being hurt. Um. If, if someone's judging you for something that's not authentically you, it's easier to dissociate from that, right? Like that's not really who I am. So they can judge that and it kind of gives you a degree of separation there. But when someone's judging your, you authentic, and you're being authentic or someone says, no, I don't, you know, if I think of it like romantically, if like you're authentic with a person that you're, you have romantic feelings for and they say, no, they reject you, it saying i don't no i don't want what you are yeah like we, you, whatever the thing that you are is your authentic self that, that's not good enough for me but that's yeah. the only way you're ever going to be happy is mm -hmm. if someone accepts you for who you are mm -hmm. so like and that's and that's honestly like what i'm this is what i'm focusing on right now is like am i what's it about like mm -hmm. i'm trying to get you know i'm a performer so it's like natural for me to perform like i want to perform but with performance comes in 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 authenticity like you're it's you you're forcing something you know and so i'm trying to like get to the point where i'm just me and and like truthfully I don't know if performance is aiding me in that, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Cause it's like the expectation of, of the performance because they're, cause then you're, you're going to get judged. Like there's no, there's no performance without judgment. Like, mm -hmm. so yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. 
like, and, and like, I've noticed even on here, it's like, I'm saying, like, I hear myself say things and they may not make sense or like, but I'm trying to just not care. <laughs> like, I'm yeah. just, which makes me feel crazy. It does. It makes me feel loco. Um, but, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's, authenticity is tough. Um, and like you said, there's a layer of performance that goes on on this show where, we're, you know, we're, we're doing a show where we're trying to be very open and vulnerable and authentic. But even then, there's a performing authenticity, right? Like you're. Well, I you're, don't want that. I mean, I get what you're saying. But, I get but you what you're saying. Yeah. I, I think it's inevitable in a little bit, in a way of like. Well, but that's the fight, right? Like that's, that's like, exactly. uh, uh, and I actually talked to my therapist about this. Like, like I can't not talk to you or I can't not talk to my therapist about my art because mm-hmm. my art is me genuinely wanting to express myself. But then there's a nature of performance in that expression. So it's mm-hmm. like this catch 22, right? Uh, but on here, the goal for me, and, the, and like, it's honestly one of the reasons why, like, I approach what we're doing the way we do is, mm-hmm. is I want it to feel like I'm talking to my friend Ricky, mm-hmm. you know, and like, well, I would say exactly what I was going to say anyway. You know, mm-hmm. I think you're a little bit better at the, but, but I think for you, you, you want the structure, the structure helps you, mm-hmm. you know, but for me, it's like, I can't take, I, 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 I like from an artist's perspective, I'm trying not to like take it too seriously because mm-hmm. I don't want to put on any more than what, cause I think that's where the art lies. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we make a good team. You know, I, 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 I do. Um, but that's what scares me about our industry. That's what scares me about what we're doing, you know? And like, and I think you, I think, uh, I, I think you also have these fears. Um, m- maybe even more than I do. <laughs> uh, I'll never and, tell. No, I'm just kidding. And I challenge you, I challenge you, Ricardo, maybe let me do the structure one week and you try to fuck some shit up. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have yeah. a problem with control. Oh yeah, I know. I know. But you've chosen <laughs> me as a best friend. So, and I'm. I had a lot of control over to, that. I try to, I try to fall into chaos. You're like, all right, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just thrive. I'll just hang out with this guy who thrives in chaos, and we can do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know what? One of these days, sure, I'll let you. I'll let you run an episode. No, I mean, I mean, maybe we'll see. I, I, oh, this okay. Is, now that I offer it, up now you're all backing away. I, I'm, I'm bucking. The, I buck the structure. But no, I I uh, I think yeah that would that could be cool. I might, you know, maybe I'll just I'll throw you some curveballs or something. I don't know. We'll see. That's okay. I know how to hit a curveball. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. There, there is a constant battle of like, like I said, authenticity is is vulnerability, and it's it's. I've been like when I was younger, I used to pride myself on being very open and vulnerable about stuff, you know, with people, especially people that I like care about. And and just one too many times, it, it you know you you get you get bit right, you get. Yeah. Something no, snaps back me. at you. I know. So, so you know, it. So it is much harder for me these days to like do that kind of thing. Um, and so, like, I totally understand that, and especially in art. Like, it, it. I think what you're saying about art is like there is a layer, there is a mask. We talk about mask a lot on this show. There's a mask, and the the thing that I think you have to try and do is, or at least that I have been recently trying to do, is bring an element of truth in yourself to whatever you're performing. So like you're, you know, like, yeah, you're, you're performing, you're putting on a mask, it's fiction, right? But what's, what you're living and breathing into it is real, right? And so like, that's where like the authenticity can come in, but gives you a, a slight safety blanket because if you just are out there bare all the time, and like you said, like performance necessitates judgment, necessitates analysis, necessitates people interpreting. Like we're like we're, what we're doing on the show, watching a movie and interpreting it and saying how it makes us feel, right? Yeah. Um. It, it it's 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 inherent, and so a safety blanket I think is nice because it allows you to be able to put yourself out there and be vulnerable, but also have that little security of like, but that's the character. Right. That's not me. There's an element of me, but it's not fully me. Well, I think as an artist, like and this is what I've strove for is that I, I am trying to take these philosophies we've learned as artists and I'm trying to like go, wait a second. I am the art, right? Like, mm. uh, I don't need to be on stage to be happy. Mm. Like it's true. Like I shouldn't have to be on stage to be happy. Cause like, if that's the case, I'm not going to be happy often mm -hmm. because no, I yeah. don't get, you know? And so I've tried to really apply the philosophies I've learned from art to my life. And I, like I said, I am the piece, you know, I like the, uh, so I don't know if I've said this on here before, but like something that I've really tried to, do and apply to my art is don't be bound by your medium. So like if you're, you know, you consider yourself a writer, don't just write, learn some music because it's only going to help you express yourself better. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if you're, you're like, I'm only an actor, you probably <coughs> should like direct something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, like, I'm trying to remove the, the the words from it and just do and be, which is not easy because, like, society makes you play roles and society makes you not be able to be authentic. So I'm trying to figure out how to position my life to be more authentic, I guess. And mm -hmm. I haven't figured it out, but, um, oh, but that's the that's it's literally a lifetime of figuring it out, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lifetime of what's it about? 
And to circle back to that, so there is a one more definition of big chill that we didn't touch on, but it's similar to Kasdan's exploration of it. So basically, the big chill is a prophesized, not prophesized, but a a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Universal, universal event of when the universe the entire universe as we know it, eventually stops. So we had the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang, everything came together, heat, pressure exploded out, and it's been spreading out ever since. To this day, things are still spreading out. However, it's been observed that things are slowing down. The universe is slowing down its expansion. So eventually, there will be a point where the universe will stop moving forward where things are going to energy is going to reach literally the point of absolute zero just stop that is the inverse of the big bang is that moment the big chill where all energy stops Hmm. so in that same way of like things stop growing eventually that's just that's just life that is literally how the world, the universe works. Eventually, everything stops moving. So, you know, what is that point? And I think for these characters in this movie, it's just to kind of relate that they had reached a point where they stopped growing. You know, they're, they're in their lives. They're kind of just living in this, this coldness of non-growth of feeling stuck and it's this unexpected death of their friend that gives them a chance to reflect on where they are and gives them a second burst to be able to start growing again you know they reversed their their stagnation yeah. their chill they've rewarmed in a way hopefully you hopefully know. that's what you hope and that's what the film makes you feel yeah. like is happening yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's sad sometimes that you need that, uh, an event like that to reignite you. And I was going to ask you, we didn't really, we can just touch on this a little bit since we are getting to our, our time limit here. Um, like I said, deaths in your life or loss in your life tends to have this effect, this reflective effect on you where you're confronted with your own mortality, which makes you look at where your life is at. And so I, I was curious, how does how do you and your family process loss and grief in that way, um, and and how does how has maybe a loss in your life made you reflect? So like, I'll, I'll give an example for me. I I've been very fortunate in my life where I, I haven't lost too many people, um, not especially not recently. Um, uh, the last like big one that was like really tough for me was my dad's mom, my, my nana. She died when I was a freshman in college. Um, and that was really interesting. So I just went away for college. The, the first semester was just about over. And that's when my, my grandmother uh, uh, was, was at the end of her life. Uh, me and my sister were able to make it home. We were able to be with her uh, for her last moments. And, you know, my family is is like Michael in a lot of these ways, and or like Sarah, and like 
jokes were made, right? Mm-hmm. Like Sarah at that one point makes a joke about uh, the bathroom, right? Like, oh, like this, this is what happened. You know, they're host- you're hosting the funeral at your place, and she's like, well, that you, that ha- that's what happens when you kill yourself in our bathroom, you know? Yeah. Like, and so like I don't know why I said that, and so like my family is definitely one of those families that like tells stories about the person, um, goes into humor a lot of times. Um, but, uh, and then push, tries to push the sadness away. Um, same thing happened when my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was a senior in college, me and my sister drove back with with my mom and it was sad. Um, yeah, of course there was a lot of emotions and it was scary. Um, but you know, while we were there, we, we also laughed a lot, you know, we hung out. It was, it was nice. Um, my mom was in remission. She, you know, since then. So that's what like. Gosh, it's eight years now in remission. Um, wow. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's tough. Um, but my family is definitely one of those ones, like, we'll make jokes, tell stories. We'll cry a little. But, like, once, like, after that initial cry, like, it's move, move on kind of thing. Hmm. Well, what about you and your family? And I, when my mom, when we, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, it was when I was, like I said, at the in my summer, I was in the summer after my senior year. So I was doing summer rep at, at Mizzou, getting ready to move to Chicago in a couple of months. Um, and that's when we had found out. And so like, there was that, uh, a surge of motivation at that time for me of like, I want to, I want to go and pursue something that's really important to me while I have the time. And also like, there was a little bit of like, I want my mom to see me successful. You know, because you know, with cancer, there's always that chance, right? Of that, it's yeah. it's that it's going to come back at some point, and so that's yeah. really scary. Um, and so it's like, and so like I'm, I have that in my mind a lot of like, and same with my dad. My dad's, my dad's, not a young man. You know, I'm 30. Yeah. My dad's, you know, in his late 60s. He's still working. He's still trucking. His health's in pretty good condition. But like, you know, you never know when those things just could go bad. And so it's like, I want to be successful before I, I lose my dad. You know, I want to yeah. show him that he raised somebody that can succeed. And, and that may not be necessarily that important to him, but it's important to me. Right. Yeah. And it's scary that like this movie makes me think about like, what if I don't succeed by that time? You know, and yeah. I, that would, I mean, that would kill yeah. me. Yeah. It'd kill me. You know, um, and so that's that's what this movie makes me think of, is yeah. I mean, where I'm at in my life and how much time do I have? Maybe not necessarily for my time, but for the people that love me around me. You know? Yeah, and just like you can't do everything, you know, like, yeah. and that's that's. I mean, for me, that's what's becoming very real. Is like, you know, I I want to have kids, but. I don't, do I really want kids? And like, I think I want kids, but I'm 34. And like, just like the beginning of this podcast, like they're exhausting. So it's like, do I want to have a kid and then be like, this is awful. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to feel that way towards my kid. So uh, yeah, I know this movie does a great job of that. And, and like to answer your question about like death and how we cope and deal uh, I can, I can only, so the deaths that are most power, like, like I grew up in a church and there was, you know, old people and then they would die. And 
and I would go to a lot of funerals. But the ones that, so I had like a concept of death pretty early, you know, which I, is I think one of the reasons why I'm the way I am a little bit is I started thinking about death at a young age. Um, but the one, the big one was my grandmother. Cause like, I love my grandmother so much. Um, and I think about her a lot still and, and her death, um, her death was hard because she slipped pretty far into alcoholism at the end. Like she, she was going and she just like was fine with it and drank, you know, and she was an alcoholic anyway, but it just got way worse at the end. Um, so like her, she started to die for me before she was dead, like in my head, but I will say, so I'm kind of like, I'm good at funerals. Um, and what I mean by that is, is like, I can usually like at my grandfather's funeral, I had something to say, uh, at the funeral, uh, my uncle died recently and I, I, I got up there and I said something at the funeral and, um, it's because like, I do look for meaning, right? Like, and so like, I'm, I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty good at leaning into the sorrow of it and trying to find the meaning in the sadness. Um, and, and honestly that comes from a, a Bible verse, um, that it's better to attend a funeral than it is a party because at a funeral you're reminded what is important in life. You know, you, you don't forget, it makes you reflect on what's important. And so I, I usually talk at, uh, if I, if it's somebody I, I know and I'm close to, I would say something, but my grandmother, I couldn't, um, that's like the one place I, it's like one of the only regrets in my life is like, well, not only regrets. I have lots of regrets, but it's a major regret is that I didn't say anything at my grandmother's funeral. Um, yeah. So I usually deal with it by looking for meaning. That's how I usually deal with it. Um, my, my parents, I would say they're avoidant. Like they just accept it. They don't really, they don't communicate about it though. They just kind of sit in it and yeah, but my dad spoke at my grandfather's and he did cry, which is one of the only times I've seen my, my, my dad cry. Um, yeah, like my family was very serious growing up. Mm -hmm. Like they're very serious people sitting around the dinner table was very like, we talked a lot about real stuff, mm -hmm. but that's on the day to day, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very different. You're, you're my dad's very similar in that. I've, I've only seen him cry maybe twice. If that, um, cause one of them, I might just be making up, um, cause I don't remember exactly, but, I, um, one of them was when, when his mom passed away was when grandma passed away, Nana. 
Again, that was when I was 18 or 19, just turned 19. Um, and yeah, that was that was one I'm pretty sure. Again, I, who knows if I remember that correctly, but one I remember very vividly was when my dad and my mom like renewed their vows. So they, when they originally got married, they didn't get married in the in the church because uh, uh, my dad had been divorced several times, and uh, my mom was uh, my mom had also been divorced. Um, so like they couldn't get married in the church, quote unquote. Yeah. Um. But they renewed their vows in the church when I was maybe like twenty something. Uh, and like me and my brother and my sister were there to like witness it. Basically, we were their witnesses yeah. for their for their wedding. Um, my dad cried when he was reading his vows, and I was like, "That's pretty beautiful." Like I've never seen my dad cry like that. And so, yeah, I totally get that. Um, but you're right; my family doesn't talk about that stuff. Like we leave that stuff. We leave that really deeply emotional stuff. We don't talk about it. <laughs> it's weird. My family, when it's deeply emotional. It's like day to day they challenge that, but when it, mm-hmm. when shit gets real, it, real it's, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like like I think there's a there's a, a bit of that. Just kind of like wrap it up here. A bit of that authenticity thing. Like when it's not right in front of you, it's easy to talk about it because it's like yeah. oh we're being real right now because we're talking about emotions. But it's like you're actually kind of like performing authenticity, like you're performing yeah. a, a, a emotional openness, but when because you don't you don't feel vulnerable right now. Right? right, because you don't feel vulnerable, you're able to talk about your emotions, yeah. or about emotions and difficult conversations. But the minute that you're vulnerable, you you shut down, you lock, yeah. you close yourself off. Yeah, and I think that's kind of where this movie does such a great job of showing certain characters that do that emotionally will pretend like they are being authentic, but are truthfully closing themselves off, and then the ones that are just out there. You know, like, and are yeah. just, this is how I feel, you know? And it's interesting to see yeah. the dynamics of how those walls break down and how they interact with each other, weave in and out of those those walls. And I think, like you said, a friend group is a great place to do that. Or it's like a place that where that naturally happens, a really close, tight-knit group of friends. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So thank you so much for, for bringing the big chill to, to me and to us today. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, it's time to talk about what's next. What is next? What is next. What's next? So uh, it's my turn to pick. Uh, and so the movie Bros is coming out next week. Uh, the comedy written by uh, Billy Eichner. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and it was directed by the comedy writer-director Nicholas Stoller. So I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to revisit one of my all-time favorite comedies which also happens to have been uh stoller's feature film directorial debut so we are going to be watching forgetting sarah marshall next week yes yes i, I love, love this love movie this movie yes 2008 yeah. forgetting sarah marshall uh for those of you watching along at home you can watch forgetting sarah marshall on tubi for free or you can rent it on youtube Google Play, Apple TV, Vudu, and Amazon Prime. So please, if you're watching along, please join us in watching Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Again, one of my all-time favorite films. 
Uh, Seth, thank you so much for being with me today and talking about The Big Chill. Why don't you go ahead and shout yourself out for the people? Yeah, you can find me at Seth Adam Crow on Instagram. That's Crow with an E. You can also find me at The Birdie Word on Twitter. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-R-D-Y-W-O-R-D. And you can find my podcast on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. That's The Crowcast. That's two words, the, and then Crowcast, C-R-O-W-E-C-A-S-T. That's right. And I'm Ricardo Blade Diaz. You can find me at Ricardo Blade Diaz on Instagram and TikTok, just like my name is spelled. You can also find this podcast, the What's It About Film podcast, on various social medias. You can find us on Instagram at What's It About Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at WeAPodWhat and on TikTok at What's It About Pod. So if you want to follow along with us on any of those, we're going to be putting up some fun content, posting episodes. We post episodes, new episodes every week, Friday mornings at 9 a.m. So go ahead and look to Apple Podcasts and Spotify on those days to find when a new episode drops. Uh, if you want to be a guest on the show, if any of our friends out there who are listening really want to talk about a movie with us, um, let us know. Reach out. Uh, hit us up. DM us. Whatever you got to do. Let us know. Uh, thank you all for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Adios.